we know things are complex. If we can understand the complexity better, maybe we can understand better how these systems work. This is Defender Radio. Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. How are ecosystems responding to the warming of the planet? It's a big question, and there isn't a single answer. But specific questions are being asked to help build a better idea of what's happening globally. Two such questions were asked by Dr. Ben Freeman and his colleagues in a paper published in Global Ecology and Biogeography titled Expanding, Shifting, and Shrinking, the Impact of Global Warming on Species Elevational Distributions. Specifically, Dr. Freeman tested a classic ecological theory that predicts temperature more directly influences species' cool range limits than their warm range limits. They also tried to determine how warming-associated shifts have changed the extent and area of species' elevational distributions. To explain what the team found, as well as why it matters and how it could influence our thinking and policy creation, Dr. Freeman joined Defender Radio. Let's talk about um, the classic ecological theory. So this whole paper that you've put together, which is immense in its scope, um, is there, there's sort of two ob- objectives you were looking at. One was to test classic ecological theory that predicts temperature more directly influences species' cool range limits than their warm range limits, mm-hmm. and to determine how warming-associated shifts have changed the extent and area of species' elevational distributions. So I just read that verbatim from the paper, as you know. Perhaps we should start, with, right. <laughs> perhaps we should start with an explanation of what those, those two concepts are, um, in more simplified terms. Right. So the uh, a big, you know, a longstanding question fundamental in ecology is to try to understand why species live where they do. Mm-hmm. So it's just a fact of life that the species that live in one place, you travel a couple hundred kilometers and you'll probably find a, a slightly different set of species. You keep traveling away and you'll find different species anywhere you live anywhere you visit on the globe will have different species. So why is that? Why, why do species live in one place but not another? And the answer, of course, is that it's complicated, but there's been a search for, for generalities. Then, and, and one thing that we know is important is just, just general climate, which is often summarized by the temperature. And we know this is important through time. So during the ice ages, it was a lot colder beyond the fact that that just much of Canada and northern United States was covered with ice, uh, it was it was colder everywhere. And species that, that now live, say, in Vancouver, during the Ice Age maxima, they live much further south, where it was, was maybe a climate similar to Vancouver today. So there's this idea that, that climate and temperature are important to understanding why species live where they do. And then there's also this idea that that maybe that's maybe climate and temperature are most important uh, at the colder end of things. And so the idea being that when you get to a warmer climate, that seems like that should be an easier place for species to live, less challenging to them. But then as you move north or as you move higher on a mountain, it gets colder, 
uh, and uh, often dramatically so. And that's that's kind of a, a little bit more obvious factor that that you could imagine would be challenging to a species. So a species that you know lives in Vancouver might not be able to live up in the Yukon because it's so damn cold there. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 the basic kind of conceptual idea behind this this kind of long-standing idea that that was maybe first pointed out by Darwin. So this is you know this idea dates back over 150 years but this idea that temperatures cold temperatures are 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 really challenging to species it's hard for species to adapt to cold temperatures uh and if that's so then a corollary is that it's it's cold that often limits a species at its at its northern range limit or at its upper elevation range limit Whereas at its southern range limit or its lower elevation range limit, where it's warmer, uh, people have said, "Well, maybe it's maybe it's not. It's a little bit more difficult to understand why being a little bit warmer would be so challenging for species." Well, I can personally say that when I'm a little bit warmer, I just can't do anything right. Um, I'm I'm a cold weather species, so I understand that basic That's right. concept. Um, <laughs> And, of course, the second part of that is how warming-associated shifts, so changes in temperatures and ecosystems, have changed uh, where species live on an elevation. Um, and That's right. you looked at, and this, this, this is staggering to me, 975 species, uh, including, uh, it, uh, in fancy terms, vascular plants, endotherms, and ecotherms, which are plants that have something to do with temperature, based on my rudimentary understanding of Latin and yeah, the, uh, the well, it's, cold it's, weather yeah, animals and warm weather animals. Yeah, it's it, it's basically it's it's plants and then it's so plants are trees, shrubs, grasses, small flowers that that whole mix, uh, and then endotherms, just meaning species that produce their own heat, regulate their own metabolism, and that's that's things like birds and mammals. And then ectotherms are things that are have have less capacity to regulate their own body temperature. So those are things like insects and lizards. And yeah, we were able to to get this really large number of species because there's been a lot of interest in understanding how recent warming is changing where species live on Earth. Mm-hmm. And it's easiest to study that along mountain slopes. Because if you're at the base of the mountain, it's warmer and it gets predictably colder as you go higher on the mountain. So within a pretty short geographic span, you can maybe hike from the bottom to the top of these mountains in, in less than a day. But you can go from a very often hot climate at the bottom of the mountain to a very, very cold climate at the top of the mountain. So it's, it's almost equivalent going from the bottom to the top of the mountain it's equivalent to say going from you know Mexico to the Arctic mm-hmm. in terms of climate and a lot of these mountain slopes. And uh, the results, um, if we skip over the scary numbers, show that there was no actual evidence saying that it's easier um, to to go between cold to warm versus warm to cold. Yeah, yeah. So what we find is that you know. Pretty much across the board on Earth right now, it's getting it's getting warmer. 
Mm-hmm. And some places are getting warmer faster than others. So places like in the Arctic and the boreal forest are warming quite a lot, whereas in the tropics it's, it's warming relatively a uh, small amount. So everywhere it's getting warmer. And so species in general in our data set, they're living at higher elevations now than they used to. But the amount at which they're moving up at their up at their cold limit is about the same as the amount they're moving up at the warm limit. And there's a ton of variation there that we can't explain. But what we can say is that uh, it doesn't seem to temperature seems to have a similar influence on species warm limits and their cold limits. I suppose one of the worrisome things if we look at it from uh, uh, the sort of broad ecological standpoint though is that there's a whole lot less space at the top of a mountain than there is at the bottom of a mountain so to speak right so that's the as you pointed out we had we had two goals in our paper and one was kind of an ecological theory goal that I, that I think is pretty interesting but is is definitely firmly within the realm of kind of academic concepts and then but it's the the flip side of that is this this basic conservation question is as species move where they live in space, do they does that matter to them? Do they get squeezed into smaller areas or do they actually get access to a bigger area that would be beneficial to them? And as you say, what what we what we find is that the answer depends on where on the mountain the species live. Most, but not all, mountains are shaped roughly like pyramids. So as you go higher and higher, there's less and less area. And so these high elevation species uh, have been predicted to to shrink in their distribution because they're they're living at progressively higher areas, and the mountaintop is just a fixed barrier. Uh, so they get they're predicted to be squeezed into smaller areas, and what we show is by compiling data for all these different plants and animal groups across the globe that that does seem to be what's happening. And there's a note um, in in the the conclusion that biotic interactions play a more prominent role in setting range limits than previously thought. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, so so again, it's this question of why does a species live in one place but not another? And and this idea has been that we can kind of separate the influence of, of how that animal is influenced by climate versus the influence of how that animal interacts with other species that it eats or that eat it or that compete with it for food. Uh, so things like bobcat and lynx, mm-hmm. like you, you could say that lynx is limited by climate, that it, lynx maybe need to have a, a place with enough winter snowfall that they can hunt successfully. And that, I, think, I think you could probably make that statement, and a lot of people might, might just say that sounds reasonable. But it's probably also limited by biotic interactions with bobcats, which are competitors um, and so there's basically what we're, what we're saying is it's, it's, it's a very, uh, in practice, difficult to separate the influence of, of climate directly versus all the interactions that species have with one another in determining why they live where they do. And that's a very 
and I'm going to go a little tangential on you. Uh, it's a very interesting concept. And as a non-scientist who has very simply an interest in ecology, I mm-hmm. often wonder when we have conversations about uh, hunting, trapping, general conservation, land use planning, developments, um, the the way we look at, okay, well, this is the species that are there and what we need to do to make sure everything's okay seems vastly oversimplified when I then turn around and speak with people like yourself who are studying these minute interactions. Um, mm-hmm. Can this kind of research that you're producing with your team then help inform those conversations and say there's more to this? So, I mean, that's the idea, right, is that, you know, we know things are complex. If we can understand the complexity better, maybe we can understand better how these systems work. And that's a very alluring goal. Uh, and it's, that goal is definitely true in, a, in some sense. Whether it can be true in a, in a helpful sense is, <laughs> is, is less clear because it's, it's easy to just say, oh, it's really complex. Yeah. Uh, and then that, that in and of itself doesn't actually change any sort of decision making. Um, so, so that's, so I actually think it's, it's, uh, there are, uh, I was about to say there's, there's some examples where, where kind of the, uh, knowing a lot more of the details is really helpful. Um, but I'm, I'm struggling to immediately come up with a, a great example. Um, but, but the the, de- the details are are complex, and then also species are able to adapt and evolve to changes. So so nature is not static. And so, I think these these studies of range limits are are, are interesting to consider in, in that in that context. The the studies that that are really helpful for kind of management recommendations do require burrowing down on single species that live in a single area and trying to understand what's important for them. Mm-hmm. So there have been great studies of caribou in, in Western Canada yep. and in the, the boreal and tundra where people have really figured out what's important for caribou in the Kootenays in British Columbia, what's important for caribou, woodland caribou in northern Alberta. So, so folks really understand what's important for them. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's a, it's always going to take kind of focused studies of of the species that you're interested in to to understand what's important. It's it's alluring, but but probably won't be that helpful to take these really general studies and then use those to to infer what's important for for specific populations. That, that makes sense. I guess it's it's more a. Um... It can serve as a reminder when we are then looking at individual species uh, that's in looking at individual species, we have the potential to miss some things. I think, you know, talking about the, right. the caribou is fascinating because, um, it, you know, and, and I won't make you comment on a political issue. Uh, I know that makes many researchers uncomfortable, but it's we understand exactly what these caribou need. And the policy that comes out of that is completely opposing that. Um, I think yeah so so that's that, and that just gets at the fact that uh, the biology side of conservation is is one component but it is by no means the uh, you know the thing that drives decisions mm-hmm. um, 
So, I mean, for for most you know most issues of of conservation interest, we kind of know more or less that most if the the large majority of plants and animals are do pretty well if we leave their landscapes more or less untouched. Mm-hmm. It's it's trying to figure out you know when there's areas with extensive human development and land use change, then some species will, will be sensitive to that. And, and, you know, the, it's, it's, uh, yeah, as, as you alluded to the, the fact that we know what caribou would need in order for, for caribou to, to mount a recovery, uh, does not mean that that's the decisions that, that we're going to make as a, as a society and, or that politicians are going to make. Yep. Um, and they have different priorities, but, uh, the other one that's yeah, well, interesting is, uh, the pikas I know. And I imagine, um, what are these, the, are they Vancouver? No, marmots. Marmots are the ones I'm thinking of Vancouver Island marmots. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that they're one of the species that climate is severely affecting and falls right into this very interesting work you've done. Um, right. I, I, I've spoken so with someone from their organization in the past, uh, and I'll get it wrong if I try and recall, but I know it does have to do with climate as well as development. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a particular case. So you have, a, in that case, a, a marmot, this, this you know, large, large rodent that lives at high elevations only on Vancouver Island only. And there are plenty of high elevation habitats on Vancouver Island, but there's not a ton of them. And these are near the mountaintops, so they're not large areas. So we're, we're talking about a relatively small number of areas that are all relatively small in size. And that's the kind of thing where where our research is is applicable to, as saying that that yes, so your your baseline expectation should be that. That, that that marmot will will most likely start to live at higher elevations uh, and shrink in distributional size, and that likely means a, a shrinking in the size of the population as well. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that species is in a very precocious point right now, um, and uh, can't necessarily afford to shrink. Um, right, right. So this is for those kind of things. It's it's you know it's it's unclear. Uh, it's unclear what what one does with that information. If the goal is to uh, provide the environment for the marmots to persist for the foreseeable future, if we know that they're, they're likely going to be moving to higher and higher elevations, it's 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 then a, a big challenge to to think about what that means for for what decision makers on Vancouver Island in those places. Uh, I do not envy the position of people who have to figure this out. Um, I I do envy the position of people like you who get to do all of the fun stuff, though. Um, And uh, people who want to learn more about this kind of science or want to support this kind of science, which, I again, I think as we learn more, these little pieces come together and we get these really interesting looks at the world and... Uh, again, you're, you're taking what you've done and we can start applying it to various species such as Vancouver Island marmot, talking about bobcat and lynx. And I know in northwestern United States, uh, Canada lynx, uh, the status 
of the species is constantly towing the line of endangered, uh, or at least at mm-hmm. risk. Uh, and a big part of that conversation, again, is climate. Uh, so for folks who want to support this, want to see more of it, want to learn more about it, what is really the best way they can go about it? Man, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that... I mean, for, for folks that are interested in this, then, I mean, the absolute best thing to do is to to go out yourself in, in nature in some place that's close to where you live and, and learn about what's going on there. Because ultimately, I mean, these, these things are, are meaningful to the extent that, that we personally care about them, and, and we're going to care about the things that we interact with and, and, and cherish ourselves. So, I mean, the most important thing is really to, to get get outside and observe what's going on and, and join a local group that that enjoys and monitors and uh, you know looks at the the plants and animals that live live around you for these kind of kind of uh, science studies then uh, I mean scanning the the various media publication uh, publications and and websites that that summarize and translate some of the scientific studies to a general audience. I mean, I'm, I'm checking various newspapers every week to read what's going on in science. Cause science is, is, a you know, I understand my small field, but mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff going on that, that you would, uh, uh, like just yesterday was, seen this video of this gulper eel that ingests lives in you know in oceans and it is able to bring in water into its body and basically inflate like a massive balloon <laughs> and just totally changes its shape and i don't know those those kind of things i, I think are really inspiring just reminders of how how cool the plants and animals that, that we share our planet with those, those are really inspiring to me Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, uh, there's some really good journalists, science journalists out there. Um, and again, I, I do not have a scientific background, as you probably picked up during this interview. Uh, I do have a journalism background, though, uh, so it mm-hmm. helps to understand what I don't know. But uh, I, I feel that the, the field of science communication is growing right now. And I'm very grateful that there's people like you who are, who are very good at communicating about your work. Uh, so the rest of us can kind of get a better understanding of it. No, thank you. Yeah, it's the, I mean, there's, yeah, like you said, there's, there's both a, a big market for, for science journalism and, and there's, there's a really good supply of it as well. You can read the full study through your preferred academic website or by following the links in this week's show notes or in the blog at thefurbears.com. I want to thank Dr. Freeman for joining the show to explain his academic findings and all of you for checking out this week's episode. Remember to follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio and Instagram at Howie Michael for updates on new episodes, contests, outtakes, and adorable photos of JJ the Hamilton Hound. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.